The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. If you need a Bible, you may raise your hand and someone will assist you. If you will, turn to Philippians 3, 12, 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 if you have not done so already. Welcome to Shades Valley, spring break edition. We have uh, entered into the spring break weeks, so a little bit more elbow room for everyone. We're going to continue our journey, though, as we go into the season of Lent through Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter 3, and we're kind of picking up right in the middle of a passage two weeks ago. uh, We did kind of the first portion of this in which we heard Paul say, that he considers, or he counts, or he reckons all things loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Indeed, he says, I have suffered. I have actually, in my life, suffered the loss of everything in order that I might gain Christ. And here's the deal. After I preached that text, I prayed. And when I said amen and opened my eyes, there was a beard to my right, If you were here, you may remember Charles Gamble was standing right here because the Lord had laid something on his heart. And Charles shared with us, and he he basically said what I think all of us were feeling. As we heard Paul's words about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Charles said, I want to know Christ like this. Like I, I long for that. I think we all long for that. But, I don't know about you, but when I look at Paul's words to the Philippians, I'm left saying, Paul, it's really nice that you have arrived at the finish line of knowing Christ, but I'm not there yet. Like I, felt, I felt that echo in, Paul, in, in, in Charles's words. I long to know Christ like that, like what you're talking about, Paul, but I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm willing to bet that you feel like you're not there yet either. Like here's, here's the deal. Paul's words, if we're not careful, his words could actually end up discouraging our hearts and leaving us thinking, Paul's arrived, and I never will. Paul sounds like he's already reached perfection, but I'm a long way from it. If you're feeling that, Paul is one step ahead of you. He knows that his words could be misconstrued that way. And in order to prevent 
two errors, actually. In order to permit two errors, he goes on to say, Philippians 3 and verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. With these words, Paul, I told you, is pushing back against two potential errors. We've already mentioned the first one that, I, that we might think Paul is perfect and thus we become disillusioned and discouraged. That's the first error he's pushing back against. Paul is perfect and thus we become discouraged and disillusioned. Paul seems to perfectly know Christ, value Christ, depend on Christ. And that's not me. So, I'll give up. Paul is screaming at us right here in verse 12. No. He doesn't want his words to discourage the Philippians or us. Quite the opposite. He wants them to encourage us to press on towards the goal of knowing Christ fully and finally. So Paul makes sure he knows, that we know he's not there yet either. I haven't obtained this yet either, he says. What, what is it that Paul is saying he has not yet obtained in verse 12? All you got to do is go back one verse to verse 11. Look back at it. Verse 11, he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this. Paul says, I haven't already obtained the resurrection from the dead. In other words, I haven't made it to the finish line of this life yet where I will finally and fully be made perfect, or we might use the theological term glorified. I haven't reached glorification yet. Glorified fully in the presence of of Christ. He's going to talk about how that future day will come. That's how he'll end this chapter. Just go down and look at verses 20 and 21, and he'll talk about the day that's coming when his body will be transformed. All of our bodies will be resurrected, transformed, be like Christ. We'll be full and perfect and final in his, in his presence. Where we'll finally and fully, perfectly gain Christ, know Christ, depend on Christ. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says, for now I see in a mirror dimly, but then on that day that's coming face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. But Paul is screaming at us right here in Philippians 3, I'm not there yet. Everything that I have talked about in verses 8 to 11, gaining Christ, knowing Christ, fellowshipping with Christ, being conformed to the likeness of death so that I might experience His resurrection. I haven't reached the full and final perfect version of any of that yet. Full and final gaining of Christ only comes on the other side of death for Paul. That's why in chapter 121, what did he call death? Gain. I'll gain Christ fully and finally, I'm not already perfect. In other words... In other words, Paul is saying, Philippi, Shades Valley, I'm in the same boat as you. And I am calling you to join me in pressing on towards perfect joy in Jesus. Paul wants us to know that he is not perfect so that we won't become discouraged or disillusioned. That's the first error he is pushing back against. But I told you that there is a second error, and it's the opposite error. Okay, the first one, Paul is perfect, thus we become discouraged or disillusioned. The second error, we are perfect, thus we become passive and prideful. 
If you read throughout the entire letter of Philippians, it seems that there are some in Philippi who thought this way. We've made it. We've arrived. And Paul's language here would only reinforce their thinking. Yeah, Paul, valuing Christ above all, knowing Him fully, finding it completely dependent upon Him, we're there with you. Already perfect. These people, they would hear gloriously true past tense language about themselves. You... You have been made righteous in Christ. It's past tense. Gloriously true. You have been forgiven. You have been saved. All of that is true. But they would hear that kind of language and they would conclude, well then, Christ has already made us completely perfect. It's all done by Him. So we don't need to do anything. And they would become passive in their faith. They wouldn't see any need to press on. They didn't see any need to do what Paul told them to do in chapter 2 and verse 12. Work out your salvation into every area of your life. They were actually allergic to any talk like that. Allergic to imperatives. Allergic to commands. Allergic to words like obey. They, They would become passive in their faith. And pridefully think that they were actually more mature than everybody else y'all just don't fully understand and grasp you know justification yet once you fully know that you have been made right in christ you'll quit all of this pressing on business you will arrive and know that you are fully and finally perfect paul looks at that crowd and says no None of us have obtained full perfection yet. None of us have been fully glorified yet. A cursory glance at your own life, heart, and the news should make that clear. We, Paul will say, cannot be passive. We have to press on toward the goal of perfect joy in Jesus. As a matter of fact, he's going to directly call out these people who think they are already perfect. He's going to do it in a rather humorous way. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature, so you got these people that think they're perfect and they think they're mature. He says, let those of us who actually are mature Think this way. What way? The way he's been unpacking that I haven't made it yet. I'm not perfect. I haven't obtained the goal. If we're mature, that's the way we'll think. It's actually even funnier in the Greek. I know. I know. You all love Greek jokes. Okay. Stay with me. His word for perfect in verse 12 and his word for mature in verse 15, same Greek root. He's playing with words. So if I was going to put it in English, it would sound kind of like this. Those of us who are perfect know that they're not perfect. Those of us who are mature, who are actually closer, quote unquote, to perfection. He's being sarcastic. We think this way. We know that we're not perfect. And I, know, I, love, I love how he adds to that this. If in anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. In other words, if any of you still think that you're perfect, don't worry. God has a way of revealing to you that you're not. It's called the Holy Spirit. He's rather good at this whole conviction thing. Paul wants the Philippians and us to know that we are not 
perfect. Yes, we have been justified. We have been made right with God. We have been forgiven. Yes, we have been justified, but that position of justification is being worked out progressively in sanctification until we arrive in the presence of Christ made fully and finally perfect in glorification. We had not made it there yet. We're not fully and finally perfect. And he wants us to know that so that we will not become passive and prideful, but instead we'll join him in pressing on towards joy in Jesus. This is his call to press on. And Shades, this is the call for all of us during the season of Lent. And I don't know about you, but my heart needs this call. My heart needs needs to hear this call to press on when i when i look around the world or when i look even in at my own life and look at look at my world it's so tempting to become discouraged and disillusioned or it can be tempting to go the opposite direction and become passive and prideful If I'm honest, anything sounds easier than pressing on. And there are many who are not pressing on, Shades. Like amidst the rising tide of cultural pressures that counter the Christian faith, there are many, many churches not pressing on in the truth of the Gospel. Letting go of the truth of this Word, or at least trimming out the parts of it that they don't think fit with the modern world anymore i'm telling you this whole book is gospel good news the whole thing start to finish even the parts that grate up against our modern sensibilities press on press into it shades it's good news there are many individuals who are not pressing on in the truth of the gospel there have been over the past year you may have seen many there's been a number of quote-unquote celebrity Christian leaders. I totally wish celebrity Christian culture would die, but that's another sermon for another day. Celebrity Christians should be an oxymoron. There have been a number of celebrity Christian leaders over the past year that have very publicly announced their departure from the faith. But even more heart-wrenching than that are the people that we know personally who once identified with Christ, but they have walked away. And this should be so discouraging. We can become so disillusioned or we can just retreat into pride and passivity. Anything is easier than pressing on. Shades, how are we going to press on in valuing Christ above everything else in life? amidst the cultural pressures, amidst the personal failures and and disillusionment and discouragement that we experience and we see, how are we going to press on to gain Him, to know Him, to fellowship with Him until that is made full and final? How are we going to press on towards full and final joy in Jesus? This is precisely what Paul unpacks in Philippians 3, 12-16. He unpacks it practically, And he unpacks it theologically. And we need both shades. Like if we are going to be truly mature Christians, then Paul says we need to think this way. We need both of what he's saying. We need the practical and the theological. The practical. Paul's going to show us what he does practically to press on. What do you do? 
later today, tomorrow, what do you do to press on? Paul's going to show us that practically. And then the theological, Paul is going to show us why and how. Why? He's going to show us why he needs to press on. This is probably directed at all of those in Philippi who might think, I'm already perfect. There's no reason, no need to press on. Paul's going to say, no, let me give you the theology behind why. And he's going to give us the theology behind the how. Probably for those of us who think pressing on is impossible. We might as well give up. He wants to give us the how. How God will actually empower us to do this every step of the way. Now, we are going to have to split this into two weeks. All right? That's why the introduction was just as long as it was. It's the introduction for two sermons. All right? But we're going to have to split this into two weeks. For the rest of this morning, I want us to just cover the practical. What does Paul do to press on? Next week, we'll get to the theological, why and how he presses on. And I recognize that this is dangerous. Okay? Because... In calling us to press on, I'm about to create a bunch of theological problems for us. I will get to them next week. Right? This is why it's dangerous to only listen to quote-unquote practical preaching. Although, I believe theology is insanely practical, but that's another sermon. Right? This is why it's dangerous to listen to only practical preaching because preaching like that with no theology to undergird it with the how it just heaps a bunch of to-dos on you to-dos like press on i'm gonna heap that one on you today to-dos like press on but it never shows you how god himself provides the power for you to do what he's calling you to do so Know this, next week we're going to take a deep dive into why we must press on, even though we have been made right, we have been forgiven, we have been saved through Christ. We'll take a deep dive into why we still have to press on. And we'll take a deep dive into how God provides the power for us to do that. His power does not eliminate our pressing on. It does what you think power would do. It empowers it. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end today. I can't not, okay? All right, we'll talk about it a little bit, but mostly next week. All right, to get the full picture of everything Paul says, got to split it in two weeks. So this morning, let's spend the rest of our time on the practical. Everybody with me? Here we go. Paul's calling Philippi to press on. Practically, what does that look like? Read with me Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, do not consider that I have made it my own. Every time you see it or something along those lines, he's referring back to everything he said in verses 8 through 11. I don't consider that I have made it my own. Knowing Christ in full. Gaining Him in full. That's why death is gain. Fellowshipping with Him in full. Glorification. Full, forever joy in Jesus. I haven't made that yet. My own brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do. There's a practical. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward or heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing. One thing. What's the one thing? Pressing on. 
If you take out the modifying clauses out of the middle and just read the sentence, you can see clearly the one thing. Paul says, one thing I do, I press on toward the goal. It's got some modifiers in there that are very important for us, but that's the one thing. I press on. How, Paul? Practically. Well, that's where we need those modifying phrases. He actually describes two practical pieces to pressing on. Okay, it's, it's, it's like that pressing on is a coin, one coin called pressing on, but it's got two sides. What are these two things? He says, one, I forget what lies behind, and two, I strain forward to what lies ahead. Two sides of the coin called pressing on. I, I forget what lies behind. I strain towards what lies ahead. This is one thing, one fluid motion, one fluid action. This is how he presses on. This is how we are to press on. So let's take these two sides of the pressing on coin one at a time. First, forgetting what lies behind. What does that mean? What what lies behind for Paul? What does it mean to forget it? He talks a heck of a lot about his past all throughout his letters, so how is he forgetting anything? It, it helps to know that Paul's language here in this passage is athletic language. It's, it's taken from foot race competitions of his day. So pressing on, goal, prize, straining, like all of that is meant to conjure up the image of a runner who who doesn't look back because he knows that looking back will only slow him down or trip him up. When, when I was in a third grade, I was playing tag with friends on the playground. While I know this is not a foot race, it's kind of similar, especially since we had, I, I, especially since I was running for a specific goal. We had a base. Y'all ever play tag this way? We like have home base. If you're touching home base, you're safe and no one can tag you. Just me? Okay, I'll move on. Anyway, we had a home base. You touched it. You were safe. And I was being chased, and I was, I was running, straining for the goal of home base ahead of me. But I could not resist the temptation to glance back at my pursuer. I took my eyes off of what was ahead, and when I turned, I failed to realize that I shifted the trajectory or the direction in which I was running. I slightly changed course. So as I turned back towards the goal, my face met a very large, very stationary pine tree. Yeah, like I kind of looked like the villain Two-Face from Batman for like two weeks. It was a little rough, and it's really embarrassing when people ask, what happened to your face? And you have to say, I ran into a tree on foot i should have simply pressed on by focusing by forgetting what was behind this is what paul does how has he not already told us we have to go back a little ways you have to go back to verse 7 we're going to go back and look at verses 7 and 8 a little bit right here okay Has he not already told us back in verse 7 how he forgets what is behind? He says this, but whatever gain I had, he's just talked to us about his past, about all that is behind. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake 
of Christ. He's just listed off everything he ever thought was gain in his life. Every prize that he had ever been running for. Everything he'd ever been straining towards. And he says, I count that as loss. That sounds a lot like I forget what is behind. And he doesn't just do that with things that he once thought were gain. No, verse 8 says he does it with everything. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything. Not just the stuff I thought was gain. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Here is how I press on, says Paul. I forget everything that lies behind. I count it as loss. Okay, Paul. What does that mean? I don't know how y'all read the Bible. This is how I read the Bible. I'm always pushing with questions until I get to the bottom. i got to know what it means, Paul. I think it means at least two things. To forget what's behind. To count it as loss. I think it means at least two things. Number one, we use all, meaning all things in our life, We use all to know and show the surpassing worth of Christ. I'm going to unpack this for us, okay? We use all to know and show the surpassing worth of Christ. I'm taking that from what I just read in the first half of verse 8. I count, I consider, I reckon everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. In other words, Paul says, Everything I once pursued as an end goal, I count that as loss. I consider it as loss. I'm going to relate to it in a way that shows I have a new and more valuable goal. Do you see that? A new and more valuable goal. Knowing Christ. Everything. I'm relating to it in a new way that shows I have a new treasure. What does that look like? Listen, I, I think we get an idea in 1 Corinthians 9, 20-23. Paul here describes how he now views and uses his ethnic heritage and his relationship to the Old Testament law. Those are things that he considered gain. Listen to how he counts them as loss to show and know the superior worth of Christ. He says this, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law became as one under the law, though I myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of of the gospel this is his list of everything that he once viewed as gain and as his end goal and he says i now use it all to show the surpassing gain of the gospel of knowing christ this is how he counts all as lost this is how he forgets what is behind it's not that he's literally forgetting it no he just listed it but he forgets it as his goal He now uses all to know and to show the surpassing worth of Christ. He does this with everything in his life. What might it look like in our life? 
what might it look like to use the very things that the world thinks are gain to show the superior gain of knowing Christ? Like, what might it look like to use our money to know and to show the surpassing worth of Christ. I bet Zacchaeus might have a few ideas for us. What, what might it look like for us to use our homes as a place to know and show the surpassing worth of Christ? What about, what about our careers? Our successes? Paul uses every success he ever has to show forth the value of Christ. That's what he says in Romans 15 and verse 18. For I will not venture to speak or boast of anything except that which Christ has accomplished through me. Paul says if anything is accomplished through me, it's all credited to Christ. I use every success as an opportunity to boast in Christ, to lift up His superior worth. He doesn't just use his successes that way. Paul even uses his failures that way. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am the foremost, the chief. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Even my failures... God redeems those and uses those to show the surpassing worth of Jesus' grace and patience. Here's what it looks like to forget what lies behind. To count it all as loss. We use all to know and show the surpassing worth of Christ. And, I told you there were two things that it meant to forget everything. And we lose all to know and show the surpassing worth of Christ. We use all as long as it's in our possession. And we lose all to know and show the surpassing worth of Christ. I get that from the second half of verse 8. Where Paul says, For Jesus' sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain in other words, in Paul's life, anytime he had to choose between holding on to something that he previously thought was gain or holding on to Christ, he held on to Christ and let the other thing be lost. Freedom, or I hold on to Christ and I lose my freedom and I go to jail, Christ is more valuable. Health, or I hold on to Christ and I get beaten. Christ is more valuable. Life. Or I hold on to Christ and I die. Full and final gain. Paul says in this way that when he does this, he personally gains more of Christ. When I let go of my health to hold on to Christ, I find out Christ is enough. He is more valuable. I, I get sustained by Him. I experience His power sustaining me through the loss of health. When I lose my financial support, I, Christ is enough. I get more of Him, more of His power sustaining me through losing my finances. When I lose these things, I gain more of Christ 
and he shows the world more of the worth of Christ. Where they see that Christ is worth more than anything else that Paul would have held on to. Do we do this? Like when forced to choose between Jesus and being socially accepted by our culture. What do we show is worth more? When forced to choose between Jesus and my sexuality, expressing it however I want, or expressing it in the way that Christ has called me to, created it to be expressed, and told me is best, what do I value more? What do I believe more? When forced to choose between Jesus and being considered intellectually respectable. This is a hard one for me, Shades. Like, this is just open heart, black, nasty sin of Jonathan's life confession. I want people to think I'm smart. I want people to think I know things about things. And the Gospel is foolishness. Am I willing to be a fool in the eyes of the world? What's worth more? When forced to choose between Jesus and my job or my health or my family or my life, what do our lives show is worth more? Paul says we forget what lies behind by being willing to lose all so that we may know and show the surpassing worth of Christ. This is how Paul practically presses on. He forgets what lies behind by using all and by being willing to lose all to know and show the worth of Christ. I press on forgetting what lies behind. But that is only one side of the pressing on coin. Paul not only forgets what lies behind, but secondly, he strains for what lies ahead. And that begs the question, what lies ahead? He tells us in verse 14. Look at it. Straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Like a runner straining every muscle in their body, stretching for the finish line, the, stretching for the goal in order to, to win the prize. Paul says, I do the same thing in my life. I strain all of my physical energy having to sleep outside and exposure and being shipwrecked and being beaten. I strain every ounce of my physical energy. I strain every ounce of my mental energy. Have you read his letters? He strains his mental energy. I strain all of my spiritual energy. He prays ceaselessly on his knees. I strain all of my emotional energy. He says that he is daily in anxiety for all the churches that he has planted and that he loves. He strains physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, every ounce of energy towards the goal, towards the prize for which God has called him. There are two things that we need to see here about straining towards what lies ahead, the prize and the call. First, the prize. 
What is the prize? It should be obvious by this point in the passage. The prize is Christ. Like Paul has said that over and over and over again. I want to know Christ. I want to gain Christ. I want to fellowship with Christ. I count all things as loss. I have lost all things in order that I might gain Christ. He wants the prize of knowing and enjoying Christ perfectly. He wants the prize on the other side of death. Full and final gain. Full and final glorification. I get Jesus as my joy forever. And he has not obtained that yet. But he's pressing on towards that prize. And the prize provides the power. You've got to see this, Shades. How are you going to forget what lies behind? You've got to be empowered to do that. I told you, we'll dig into this deep next week. But we're going to scrape the surface just a little bit here before we close. How are you going to be empowered to, to forget what lies behind? Power comes through the prize. How are you going to be empowered to strain for what lies ahead? Power comes through the prize. I guarantee when my energy is flagging for pressing on, it's because I've taken my eyes off the prize. The prize provides the power. Isn't that how it works in a foot race? Like a, like a runner runs hard because they want the first place prize, be it a, a ribbon or money or just bragging rights, like whatever it is, he wants the prize. The prize provides the power to, to press on. The prize provides the power to forget what lies behind, to strain for what lies ahead. My, uh, my kids and I were talking around the dinner table the other day. Um, we just finished Bible study. Don't, don't get the idea that this is what every evening in my house is like. Right? No, I have not yet obtained perfection. This is just us pressing on. Okay? But this particular night, we had managed to cobble everybody together and read the Scripture. And, and so we got into this conversation about the final state of all things. When Christ returns, redeems all things, new heaven, new earth. It's basically Eden all over again. I don't know what your picture of eternity is. But if it's like fluffy white clouds and little halo rings, I'm going to poke a pin in that balloon for you this morning and pop it. That's not what eternity is at all. Think Eden. It's the world redeemed and remade. Heaven and earth meet. God lives and dwells among his people forever, and they have full and final joy in him. It's glorious. It's life as it was intended to be. It's not an eternal church service. It's life. So my kids and I were talking about that. It's one of their favorite subjects to ask questions about, which is disappointing because it's one of the things I have the least amount of answers about. But we're talking about it, and I'm trying to describe to them what it would be like, and I can see their excitement growing. But the excitement of my eldest shot through the roof when I began describing that there will be no more sickness. All of a sudden... A light bulb went on in her head, and she goes, wait, you mean I will never have to puke again? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yes, but you know, the, the real prize is, is Jesus. I, I, don't <laughs> I don't think she heard me through her celebrations. We'll get there. But she was provided with all sorts of new power to press on through the sufferings of puking in this life. And the power was provided by a prize. 
Paul strains for the prize, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I wonder, as we talked about, that forgetting what lies behind means being willing to lose all in order to hang on to Christ. I wonder if that sounds like loss to you or if it sounds like gain. That's the difference in being lost or a Christian. Does that sound like loss? Or does it sound like gain? Christian self-denial, the life of self-denial for the Christian when Jesus says, if you want to follow Me, deny yourself, take up your cross, come after Me, a lost person, all they hear is deny yourself, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross. What a saved person hears is if you want to follow Me, come after Me. You want to follow Me, Come after the Christian life of self-denial is never about just denying everything and just folding your arms and suffering through life. It's about denying what can never satisfy to get the only thing that can. Denying paltry pennies for the purest of gold. His name is Christ. That's the prize. It's the prize and the prize provides the power Paul strains for the prize of the surpassing worth of Christ, which has been set before him through the call of God. It's the second, it's the final thing. Final thing we need to see about straining for what lies ahead. We've seen the prize, and now we need to see the call. Paul says he's straining for the prize of, or the prize promised in, the upward, the heavenly call of God that comes through Christ Jesus. God issues a call. He issues it in Christ, through Christ. And then He promises a prize, and the prize is Christ. The prize of Christ has been set before Paul by a call from God. Namely, when God called Paul to faith. All who trust in Christ, if you trust in Christ, you have received this heavenly call. We all were living our lives set on some other prize, but then came an upward or a heavenly call of God. He opened our eyes to the true prize of knowing Christ, and that surpassed everything else. Saw him, and he was beautiful, and I wanted him. I don't care what it costs. The call of the gospel set before us the prize. It did so initially, and it does so continually. The call of the gospel set the prize before us initially, and it still does that continually every day of our lives. If I am not setting my eyes on the prize, not seeing the prize, it's because I am not paying attention to the call of the gospel. Through the gospel, God called our hearts to Christ, and through the gospel, God keeps our hearts set on Christ. What is your heart set on? I guarantee that's the gospel call you're hearing. That's the thing that's calling to you as good news. This is what you need in life that will satisfy you. What are you straining for day after day with all of your physical, mental, spiritual, emotional energy? Paul strains for the prize of knowing Christ, which is set before him through the call of God in the gospel. If we're not straining for the prize of Christ, perhaps it's because we are not setting our eyes on the prize in the gospel. This is how the prize of Christ gets set before you. This is how, Shades, through the call of the gospel. If we're ignoring 
the gospel, we won't be seeing the prize. We'll be straining for some other goal in life. Is this not Paul's entire point throughout this whole letter to the Philippians? It's not his whole point to set before them Jesus as their joy, Jesus as their prize, as their goal, so they'll press on to know full forever joy in him. Is this not what he called them to do just a little while ago in chapter 2 and verse 16 when he told them, hold fast to the word of life, to the gospel. Set the gospel before you day after day and see the prize of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is how Paul presses on shades. This is how we press on. This is how power is provided to us through the prize of Christ. We behold that prize through the gospel. Shades, this is what it looks like for us to press on. We embrace both sides of the pressing on coin. We forget what lies behind. Now using all and being willing to lose all for, for the sake of knowing and showing the, the joy that is in Jesus. When we, we forget what lies behind and we strain. We strain for what lies ahead. The prize of Christ announced to us in the call of the gospel. Do you hear that call this morning? Do you see through the word the prize that is Christ? Will you forget what love? Will you be empowered by that prize? To forget what lies behind and to strain for what lies ahead. Shades Valley, this is our call in the season of Lent. Will we join Paul and all of our brothers and sisters throughout time and throughout the world today in pressing on towards full and final joy in Jesus?